0: All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called eMission, and eMission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit TechnipFMC.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and
1: complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the
0: Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen.
1: Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for the Department of Energy Oil and Gas Upstream Research Program. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technip FMC, our sponsor. And I want to ask you for a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds and the link is in the show notes. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your neighbors. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Jimmy Robinson of Northern Oilfield Services. Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Oh, well, thanks for having me on. Great.
1: Jimmy is the founder and COO of Northern Oilfield Services. He founded the business with three hundred forty-five thousand dollars in cash, seven employees, and two master service agreements, he established a company offering sales and rental of completion and production equipment throughout the Rocky Mountains. He captured two million in the first year of revenue, eight million in the second year of revenue, and fifteen million revenue in 2019. Prior to assuming the role of founder and chief operating officer for Northern. Jimmy achieved over a decade of experience, driving positive outcomes across operations, leadership, safety compliance, process improvement, revenue growth, sales management, team leadership, and risk management in multiple roles with Greens Energy Group and Rocky Mountain Testers. Jimmy, again, welcome to the podcast.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that introduction.
1: Great. Great. Well, um, Tell us about Northern Oil Field Services. Where are you located and what do you do and how do you do it? Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we are, uh, we're uh, Balkan uh, That is basically the only place we're at at this point. And really uh, doubling down on that community and, and that shale play, it, it seems to make the most sense for us. And uh, for what we do, it, it is really uh, in a lot of vein, your traditional wellhead and valve company, uh, casing heads, tubing heads, all the way up to the frack iron. And then, of course, we're there until the well's uh, done so any anything that operates anything that holds pressure while uh, frack and and sand you know is going down and uh, as oil and gas is coming back up we like to be a part of that at any any main uh, junction so that's that's the very small piece of it but as everybody knows when you're in the oil field you end up being the jack of all trades a little bit and uh, the the key point being to uh, service your client as best as possible
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, not everybody who listens to our podcast is an upstream person or a subject matter expert. Some people are just sort of interested to see what what does upstream mean. So sometimes I ask guests to give us a sense of um, upstream, um, their part of the upstream, what contributions you make to upstream, how you fit in with other pieces of upstream. Um, and, of course, upstream has to do with the expiration of production part before we put it into a pipeline and take it out into market. So tell us about your your piece of upstream.
0: Well, absolutely. It was, as we call it, uh, upstream is everything until it hits the pipeline. After that, it's a it's a whole other market. Uh, and like I said, our job is uh, what we would call above ground. So once uh, once the casing comes out of the ground and you start with your casing head, it's, it's all about containing fluid, containing pressure uh, to protect the environment, to protect people. And, and so that's what, what we really focus on. And, and that comes, you know, from an engineering standpoint, I always Uh, tread lightly when I say this, but there hasn't been any real new technology in what we do from an iron standpoint in a very long time, right? A valve opens, a valve closes. Sure, you can make it quicker. uh, You can make it safer. uh, But ultimately, nobody's invented a new real valve that's been of any uh, substantial value to us in the way perhaps fracking technology or directional drilling technology has been. So a little bit of uh, our business is uh, down to a commodity. And so it is all about service uh, and making sure while we're out there that nothing nothing leaks. There are no problems. And that's where you become almost more of an inspection and safety company as much as you do a uh, pressure control company.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to help out the people who are um, not upstream savvy like you are, um, give us a sense of what that actually looks like. So we know that um, the well is underground. We know that there's a surface. Some people are familiar with um, Christmas trees. Some people are familiar with pumping units. Um, But ultimately, it all starts at the same place at the surface with a wellhead. And then, what does your equipment do, or how do you help people um, for for the people who are outside of the oil and gas sector?
0: Okay, well, it's uh, you're absolutely right. If you if you can envision the wellhead, there's that question for anybody that how does. How do you keep the gas or the, the oil or whatever it happens to be contained? And a lot of that is uh, basic sealing surfaces with uh, metal green gaskets. And we'll use a system of uh, bolts to tighten it. And uh, thank you to our friends at ABI and everybody else to tell us exactly what that needs to be so that uh, we're comfortable with that. So a lot of it is coming out and, and, once again, installing this equipment and just making sure it lands on those those specs. And that, and that includes tails, both hydraulic and manual uh, torque of these bolts so that they are uh, uh, tightened exactly how they need to be. And then the rest is coming back in 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 either pressure testing or or, uh, pneumatic testing to make sure that it'll hold a uh, a minimum requirement. And usually that's several times over uh, what they're going to see and usually at least a little bit over what the equipment is rated for. running. So we'll, we'll come out and make sure that all of that that is handled uh most of the equipment uh, from a design standpoint while there is a great amount of uh, engineering uh advancement the larger that comes from the emp companies how do they want it designed what do they want it to look like what are their goals with the fluid either coming in or or going out and and our, it's our job to uh to jump to it and make sure that that is to the highest uh, specification necessary
1: yeah yeah and so api is american Petroleum institute and they set the standards uh, for oil and gas equipment um, and and other things of course but the area that you're in is the oil and gas equipment as you say at the surface so you mentioned hydraulic fracturing so how does your work uh, contribute to the success and safety of hydraulic fracturing
0: well, I suppose we have to keep one step uh, ahead of them and the engineers with their new ideas of how fast we can pump, how much stuff we can pump down into the ground, and, and, uh, and what the uh, whether it's chemical composition or just the kind of sands they're using. So our, our valves and then the uh, iron in between them, uh, well, they, they take the beating. Uh, when you imagine you're pumping a million pounds of sand over a very short period of time, uh, sometimes 30 minutes up to a couple hours, that's going to make some wear and tear. Uh, and so it's really our job to stay ahead of uh, the curve on that to make sure that uh, this equipment handles, you know, uh, what used to be just a few stages. There's some lightly pumped stages. Uh, you know, that, that work has increased exponentially over the last couple of decades. And we're, we're seeing more sand in a single stage than maybe we were on some of the early cracks. 15 years ago. So staying ahead of that, making sure that the pressure is right, and then having the people there to maintain our equipment uh, uh, in any uh, movable object grease or some other lubricant is the goal. And really, that's that's no different for the oil industry. Keep that sand, keep that chemical out is all about pumping uh, grease and keeping things uh, sealed off tight. Uh, so that, that's where we, we stand in on, on that sort of stuff. And once again, it's very much uh, EMP driven. Here's how we want these Set up because this is how flow is coming. Here's our feeling on chemicals and everything else going in. Show us, uh, show us your specs. Show us that we can handle this, and we'll go ahead and we'll uh, we'll push as hard and as fast as we can to get on to the next one.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are uh, familiar with um, the subsurface and how um, you do fracking stages, and you know the heel and the toe, and some stages are productive and some stages are not, but. I, I think we take the surface piece for granted. Uh, so what are some of the challenges there? I mean, once you start fracking a stage, I mean, you, you go to each follow-on stage, or I guess you start at the toe and come up, but um, the, each follow-on stage, do you have to change over equipment at the surface? Do you have to stop? Do you... I mean, I I always see the pretty pictures in the movies, right, as people are bragging about their success. But, you know, it it takes a lot of coordination. And as you say, you have to be attentive to the safety and that. So how does a how does a frack job go at the surface for for some of us who haven't uh, had the chance to be out there?
0: Well, the goal is, of course, never to change any equipment while you're doing the job. So so some of that is, of course, having equipment far enough above spec that you shouldn't expect any of that to happen. But with anything, when metal comes against rubber, comes against the oil field, things bound to break. Uh, add in the fact that North Dakota likes to be cold, uh, very, very, very cold. That that always affects. But in, in theory and on most jobs, they, they, they don't break down. We've we've come a long way, uh, incrementally with the kind of seals and, and types of metals we use. Um, you know, as you harden some of your metals, they just they take a bigger beating and really the only job of our equipment at that point is to make sure we close and that we can isolate when they're done fracking that stage and they're moving on. And so, uh, most of that, like I mentioned earlier, comes from the, uh, the grease, which, uh, surprisingly the best we found is developed by a Southerner for Northern weather. But, uh, We'll uh, we'll take the winds where we can get them, uh, th- but that's going to be a big part of it. You know, sure things will break down with that many moving parts, and I, I wish we we had a small uh, audio clip just to let people hear the sound when a uh, frat crew fires up for the first time. It is a it is a beautiful sound in-, in a lot of ways. It's a lot of horsepower firing up, and a lot of water and a lot of things moving and. and- uh, uh, our iron is somewhat what they call the dummy iron. Just hold on tight and make sure you survive the run. And then after the job is done, we'll pull it off and come back in. And that's where uh, our our specs really come in. Okay, have we do we have serious wear? Uh, what parts can we replace? What parts have to be re-welded? Or has the equipment taken such a beating that it makes more sense just to replace it for the next one? And that that's where you hope you can come in and that uh, you replace all the rubber goods. You always do that no matter what, right? Any opportunity you get, change that $50 seal, change that $20 Teflon seal, any of that kind of stuff, uh, absolutely. And then uh, we continue to evolve and try to figure out that that balance between cost and better metal, better materials so that that we can withstand, uh, you know, I guess these are terms that are common in our industry, but when you think about 100 mesh sand and just how fine that is, it can find a crack inside of anything to get into. You look at some of the new uh, compounds for chemicals, that they're using uh, different acid bases uh, that can just peel. We've seen it peel off what we thought were really, really good uh, coatings in, in a matter of minutes. So uh, there is a, a, a delicate balance between those two. Uh, and, and we seem to have found it. And I think the industry as a whole really has this. You don't hear about the blowouts. You don't hear about these kind of things, not because they're covered up, but because they just don't happen at a very high level. Uh, they just don't happen that often right and when they do there are redundancies there's a reason you don't walk out on a frac site and see one valve all you need is one valve right hook on let's go close it no you you see two you see three you see six or eight i think mean, most of our heads have at least a backup for every backup and and you don't have to have that when things go right but it's that two percent when things go a little wrong that okay good we can close this in we can reduce what we've done we already have containment and things in place if there is an issue and we can easily clean this up without uh, leaving a, a scourge on the earth, which I, I think a lot of people out there kind of think we probably do uh, and uh, i i promise uh, promise you we take that seriously. I think people miss the fact that most of uh, my colleagues and the people i 've worked with for decades are some of the largest con- you know conservatives and I mean that in the in the environmental standpoint we We love where we 're at we want to go fishing, we want to go hunting, we want to go hiking, we want to make sure our great grandchildren do it too so. A lot of that comes back to when you think about your second or, or third uh, level reasons for doing what you do. That's a, that's a very big part of it, uh, which I which I learned early early on when you work in a, an oil and gas field where you can see the uh, Wyoming Range in the beginning of the Teton Mountains. Um, you you want to protect that even if what you're standing on is a little bit of ugly sagebrush at the at the moment. You know the animals that are there uh, because sometimes you got to. Shoo them off location when you show up. Uh, So I think that's a that's a bit of a rant on that, but I think it's key to what we do and and why we do it the way we do. There there was a time before we really understood where yeah you would show up to a frack and there'd be two valves and you just hook on and go and oh okay this happened we'll just shove that off into the reserve pit and deal with it later and you know those are things that are long gone. Um, You know twenty thirty years ago that might have been a little more standard and even then it occasionally happened. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't what you saw in the mainstream. So I'm very proud, like I say, of my, on my little rant of what we've done as an industry to kind of clean those things up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've been up to, um, Teapot Dome, um, once and I've been to, um, Colorado many times, not to up to, um, uh, uh, North Dakota, but certainly the oil field is, um, there are some places that are really, really beautiful. And, um, yeah, there's a great harmony between uh, the natural environment environment and the engineered environment that we bring into oil and gas. So there's an element of science and technology and, and commitment to safety and protection and prevention and preparedness associated with everything that we do in the oil and gas sector. Part of it is the standards that we have, like through API, uh, and the regulation and the enforcement thereof. So, you know, the oil field in the U.S. is you know, pretty clean compared to other parts of the world, I would, I would have to say. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's really great. You're very enthusiastic about your, about your work. I I love that. I love the passion. You're very, very committed. So how did, how did you get into the oil business?
0: I was, I was born into it. Uh, Third, third generation. Uh, My grandfather was a, was a cattle rancher in Texas until the late seventies and uh, found a reason to uh, come up to Montana originally and then settle in Wyoming and, uh, and spent the rest of his life, uh, mostly drilling, uh, in Wyoming actually. Uh, and then my father, um, I believe he was on uh rigs long before he was supposed to, but, uh, he, he'd done it on and off really since he was 15, he could jump on one of his uncle's work over rigs in Texas while he was going to college over the weekend to make a few extra bucks. And, and, uh, You know, he came out probably one of the worst times to come out uh, uh, of college uh, there in the mid 80s and uh, just had to find him any roughneck job he could have. And, of course, him and my mother got the entrepreneur bug. And uh, as they say, if you've got an entrepreneur in the family, you're more than likely going to get that bug at some point. And I I believe I did. It's uh, it's ingrained whether you know it. You sit on your dad's me at uh, nine and watch him do the books, uh, you're, you're going to get a, you're going to be interested in it. So I, I suppose I'm lucky I'm passionate about it because it has been my, my life. Uh, there was one moment I thought I was going to get out of it around 2016, you know, or fourth or so bus since i had started, but that, that lasted, uh, almost no time at all. So, uh, it's, it's been an exciting run. It's been a, a big change from even what I, I saw in early two thousands to what we're doing now, you know, the. We're getting to a point, especially on drilling, where you can only drop the pipe in the in the ground so fast, and we're getting pretty close to that. It feels like, uh, so we uh, we we figure out where we can we can best uh, increase efficiencies of course, but safety has gone up exponentially as well. Um, and, and I have no problem mentioning this year wasn't great, but uh, we also we expected it to some degree. We've done all we can, but you have a couple years where you're not doing a lot of work, and you bring a bunch of new workers back in. There, there's a tendency for things happen. And that's any in industry, not, not just ours. Uh, uh, and with our dedication and really expanding out into other uh, industries to learn from them, safety-wise, I'm very, I'm more and more impressed every day, actually, at, at how proactive oil and gas is. And I suppose that comes from always being out in front and really being in the news. Uh, but we, we definitely do a, a lot of things that others don't. We've seen the increase across industries that, of course, we hope comes down as we get more people trained and, and back into the full force of the you know, the full round of things since uh, kind of that two-year lull and a lot of this. So we definitely, uh, we're definitely looking forward to that. Uh, Northern has been uh, extremely fortunate. Uh, we put in the work, but we've been extremely fortunate to not have an, a true recordable uh, so far in our history. Um, but even the few small bumps, bruises, bangs along the way, we take seriously because we know, uh, for anybody that's been in this industry long enough, uh, bad things do happen. And, and unfortunately many of us do know people that, uh, they're that no longer with us, uh, due to some work accident, uh, so we we keep that in mind um, I, I suppose personally i'm I'm fortunate too my one of my good friends that's worked with my family for thirty plus years uh he was in an industrial accident outside of the oil and gas uh, and now he's my safety guy so it's uh it's pretty easy to uh, take a safety guy serious when he can show you the scars from where his uh, foot was actually torn from his uh, body for a while after a Trench fell in on him. So he uh he, he learned by example, I guess, at first and now he's able to share that with everybody.
1: Yeah. That was outside the oil field. Yes, yes. He experience.
0: was uh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: so your grandfather was in the business, your father is in the business, and you're in the business. So you um have probably seen a lot of changes in the industry over the course of time. You know, we we talk about um uh, we don't have gushers anymore. There's a, there's a scientific reason for that in, in, in addition to the safety and environmental sustainability of our new oil and gas uh, practices. But you've seen a lot of challenges, or I'm, I'm saying a lot of changes, and maybe some of the technologies. I mean, like some of the technologies that I saw over the course was when I first started in the oil business, I did not have a personal computer um, I, I, spreadsheets were a paper and pencil, a good eraser. And um, the first um, uh, computers were actually terminals uh, connected to mainframe. And we had to share those. So, so obviously, I mean, I think you're a little bit younger than I am. So, what are some of the technology changes that you've seen that you might be able to sort of help people outside the oil business or people who haven't been in the business a long time kind of track something, um, especially on, you know, the surface or your end of the business or your grandfather, your father's, um, you know, point of view. Plus you've been in it Absol- a long time.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, well, yes. Uh, you know, I, yeah, there's nothing funner than sitting down with someone like my grandfather, uh, and listening to what they do. But, uh, I think there's two main technologies that have changed stuff. And that would of course be directional drilling and the way in which we frack or fracking in general. Um, and, and I think a, a story will best illustrate it. One of the first wells, my grandfather drilled in, uh, central Wyoming. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a deep well. it's 20, 20,000, 22,000 feet deep, but it took him over a year to drill that first well. Um, now that well still to this day is producing natural gas in that field. So that is some um, almost 40 years later. It's it's certainly not pumping out what uh, these new fracked wells are, but these were longer running. You you would see some of these fields that uh, even after 20 or 30 years may still have 70 or, or 75% or more uh, res- reserves still left, even with the kind of been drilled out. So we, we were looking at that at a, at a point, and there was times where, you know, injecting with uh, CO2 and some of these older fields and other things worked uh, or seemed to work, but you can you can go from a time where you were drilling straight down that might take you a year on these big projects to now. Uh, even fast forward 20 years and you're talking about the beginning of the, the frack boom and really directional drilling. Becoming its its own entity, and, and you're looking at these natural gas wells that it was taking 25 to 30 days to drill, and these were good wells. You know, you were down a uh, 10,000 feet, maybe your lateral was uh, a mile or so, and, and now fast forward to uh, 2022, and you're drilling these in six days. You're still going 10 000 to 12,000 foot down. You're going two, maybe three miles of lateral, uh, and you're moving quite a bit more to the point where, uh, as I joked earlier, you can only drop pipe in the ground so fast and we're seeming to get pretty close to it so we've seen such a growth and and for those that aren't uh up on directional drilling which i I am no expert basically it gave the ability to start to steer that that pipe in a uh, in a more horizontal way it was always pretty easy to keep it in line going down if you were a good driller but all of a sudden now you could turn pretty hard right or left and and start to reach out and you could cover more of the zone and that helped and then of course you bring in fracking let's see if we can't uh, break this rock up a little bit use sand. And this is very, very low tech. So uh, don't send any letters that I got it wrong because I definitely got it a little wrong. But in theory, you're going to use this sand to, to break up the rock and then add like a, a open filter a little bit to let that oil uh, come back out with that natural gas pushed up. So what we've seen with with that technology um, and my, my early experience, once again, would have been about 20 years ago. We would come out. It might take us a week or longer to frack one well. Maybe we were getting two or three stages done. All the equipment was breaking down. We couldn't keep pumps running. You would blow back every single stage because we had coil tubing units weren't really – they weren't viable. They existed, but they weren't viable to clean out the way some of these other ones had. Um, and it, So you would, you would stretch out over this time. These wells wouldn't be quite the same uh, and I may be rambling a little bit, but the big difference there too, is these wells would come on screen for 180 or 200 days and then drop down. So you would get so much more of the production early on, uh, to, which you had to, you were starting to invest a lot more money in these wells through fracking than you were to, to drill a well and let it, uh, let it make you a nice, uh, dividend for the next 40 years. Uh, so you had that and we just kind of took a corner and, uh, I don't want to call it crazy, but there's a few of them out there. We're, wild, we're called wildcatters, or some of us are for a reason. They they just keep throwing more horsepower, more pumps, more chemical, more everything just to see where we go. And uh, yeah, there is no right answer. And I know that because I sat at a Doug conference a couple of years ago and watched two very well-respected uh, CEOs uh, speak about an hour apart. And one of them said that uh, a certain amount of sand was perfect, and they thought they uh, – they would do just a little bit more, and the next one came in and said half that was perfect, and anything more than that was a waste. And uh, I think they were both right. And those those two companies drill within miles of each other. So uh, what we forget is it's several miles down there, and we have no idea what's really going on, right? Uh, but but we've seen this sort of uh, rev up on all this, and uh, we, we've mellowed out, uh, I think, over the last three or four years to where the majority of the industry is is taking a pretty. Uh, baseline. There's not a lot of changes. We've moved back and forth between customers. Maybe different theories on how you do small changes, but it's not the, not the days where we would show up on a frack and you know one, one group would pump 100 or 200,000 pounds of sand, and the next one would pump 2 million. Uh, I think the, they, they've come to a consensus um, in, in a good way, and, and also across basins. This has been a very important change from a managerial standpoint is now we're dealing with different rock and they've learned that you can't come up from, uh, say, the Anadarko to uh, to the Balkan or even the Middle Fork and treat the rock the same. They're they're not the same. They don't break the same. They don't react the same. And uh, so you've, uh, I guess, bad for business a little bit. You've created silos. You have to be kind of uh, base and specific with a lot of that stuff. A lot of a lot of it crosses over, but uh, more and more of it you're seeing. You you have to find uh, what works. Uh, and I know specifically they, they say the Bakken rock is a lot softer than some of that stuff uh, farther south. And so why pump, you know, 20 million pounds of sand in a hole if you're going to get 14 million of it back. Uh, so that, that, that's the, that's the very uh, uneducated version. I, I definitely don't uh, claim to be an expert.
1: Well, thank you for that. You really did bring in a, a lot of, uh, a lot of pieces. For example, um Hydraulic fracturing, so when I worked for the Department of Energy, the Department of Energy was the first to put a lot of money into fracturing, uh, hydraulic fracturing, understanding natural fractures, and then also into horizontal drilling. But it was the industry that put those two technologies together is what created this you know, shale revolution, which I don't really like that term, but anyway, people know what they, what I mean when I say that uh, bringing that together. So, so what, when was your first frack job and, and, you know, how big was it and where was it and what did you think at the time?
0: Well, that's, that's interesting. So fracking really the wellhead side. has kind of been a second career. My first official oil filled job was watching trucks when I was nine or 10 for my dad. Uh, he, he owned a pressure testing inspection company. So, uh, uh, I think it's past the statute of limitations, but I was uh, 16 the first time I took a truck out there and did a test on a rig. Um, so I had that whole career first before uh, I kind of jumped into to this frack side of things. Um, the frack, my first frack that we were really on where it was my equipment would have been uh, 2016 up in the Bakken. The first frack I was on where I was more of just a uh, uh, helper, I was there to inject methanol because it was 40 below outside. Uh, that would have probably been in 2005, uh, so you know, 15 plus years ago um, for that. But it, it's amazing in the industry you can be around a lot of iron and not understand it until you get into the middle of it. And so, what I've been able to learn over the last uh, six or so years on the, the wellhead and valve side has been uh, has been astonishing. Things I should have probably already known. But there is no oil and gas college, right? There is no place you can go to learn about the industry. You can become a petroleum engineer. You can, you know go into the mechanical side of it, design things. But there is no really, you know, education uh, for just us uh, us roughnecks out there. We do it all by uh, feel. And and hopefully, uh, if you're lucky enough, a few uh, guys take you under your wing and mentor you and teach you a few good things and also have you go chase the speed or key a few times uh, just to keep you level-headed. So, uh, you know, to answer the rest of that question, the first one was uh, a a Four well pad, and uh, it was out there uh, in, in the Balkan, really close to the Canadian border, actually. Um, and it was uh, luckily enough, it was in the early summer, so we didn't have to deal with the, uh, the weather just yet. We had a few months before we had to wrap everything in tarps and, and buy a, a group of heaters to keep us uh, thawed out. But it was uh, it was quite an experience being on that side. Um, and even there's an evolution. I, I kind of break up. The, there used to be the one or two truck fracks that we would do through the, the early aughts and into. You know, kind of as North Dakota was coming up, that, that changed, and you started seeing a lot more trucks there in Pennsylvania. First time I was really on a frack that I call, that resembles something of like what they do now, would have been in uh, 2011, actually, uh, down in the DJ, and it was a, a cold, uh, but silent, no wind morning in, in I want to say February is right around my birthday. And just the sound of all that horsepower power firing up at 7 a.m. to kind of break the silence and come out was something was something magical. Um, and, then, uh, <laughs> and then they all kind of feel the same after that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and you mentioned. um you know the workforce and uh, and people aspect of it a, a couple of times, and you know we've got a couple of dynamics going on. You know, young people are not coming into the oil sector, and we need their you know we need people to be coming in, right, replacing the the old, um, or I should say, the elder. And then uh, and then and then we've got um, you know the the fact that transferring the skills of the oil and gas field. Um, oil and gas uh, experience and technologies and and you know calculations and understandings about the subsurface to other sectors like geothermal. And so you know we're losing uh, oil field workers to that sector uh, for the um, enhanced geothermal uh, reservoirs where they actually it's deeper, it's hotter, it's harder rock, uh, and uh, it's just an extreme environment, uh, both pressure and temperature. And um, so you really need the highest level of experience to be able to, to transfer that. So we've got a lot of th- you know a lot of dynamics going. And um, what would you say to uh, to people who are interested in staying with the oil and gas sector and you know, the future of the industry and, and- what kinds of things that you know might uh, encourage them uh, to stay in the industry or come into the industry? Because that's a real that's real important. Because we're not going to get rid of oil and gas anytime soon. So,
0: uh, no, absolutely. And you know, we are uh, we're a victim of our own success. Uh, I was speaking about this with uh, with a few colleagues just a month or so ago. There was a time twenty years ago where it took two thousand uh, drilling rigs with more people than run them now to drill the same number of wells or fewer than we're drilling now. So you had this larger workforce, generally, generally speaking, you would have these guys come off the rigs. So those would be early jobs. And then they would come and they would become wellhead hands or they'd become tool hands or they become something else, company men, all that. So all of a sudden we've reduced that workforce uh, a great deal. So once you, you take that in, I thought it would change over as you would need more and more people on frac crews. But surprisingly, that peaked and went down really quickly. And, and there's many companies working where uh, they don't want anybody or maybe only one or two people actually on site while they're fracking. So other than trucking in and rigging up, you're not going to have that many people. So we haven't had that balance. Now, mix that with uh, the last 20 years has been uh, rough on many, but you add in the uh, the dot-com bubble, which uh, took a lot of financing out of the, the market and hurt oil and gas. 9-11, of course, was a shakeup. Then you have 2008, where a lot of people left, went into construction and other jobs, take the 15-16 downturn, add on to the 20 uh, 20 issues. And all of a sudden, we've just continually lost people. So people, you know, between 30 and 45, there just aren't a lot of us. And, you know, that's what the core group really needs to be, is we we have a lot of guys aging out, a lot of people my father's age that, that are moving on. Now, it, it, there is a benefit to that. If you're still willing and, and you love to work and get dirty and and you want to learn there there is room because you're going to start specializing more and more you, you know so uh to some degree uh i think the jobs are more valuable as the competition reduces a little bit if you are the right candidate this no longer seems to be the industry like it was say a decade ago where you could just up and leave from a, a big city in minnesota or ohio and just show up in the bakken and get a job for 25 or 30 or 40 dollars an hour you know we don't We've gotten really good at that and I think automation is going to continue to be forced to fill that gap. It scares me a little bit to think there's only be two or three guys on a location while, uh, while it's being fracked. But, but we definitely will head that way and we'll head that way faster and faster. Um, I, I think people forget that up until the dot com boom, Exxon, Chevron, these companies were the largest companies in the world by a long, long way. And I, I still feel in some way, if you, you consider them as owning things, are still some of the largest, even if their uh, market valuations don't match up to, uh, to say, a Google or something like that. Um, and these companies uh, are smart. Uh, there was a big uh, overseas conference, and Chevron made one of the largest uh, capital pushes into solar energy and and other things and automation that we've ever seen an actual push, not a, Oh, please look at this, write about it and ignore what we're doing over here. Um, So a lot of it's going to come down to that. And, And while that might scare some people, I think there are a lot of humans out there that are, are yearning to go back a little bit in time, where you can still experience life and use a computer. Right? You can be outside. You can you can uh, you don't have to sit in the desk all, all the time. So I think there's an opportunity for those kind of people that are willing to evolve, willing to change. Uh, it, it's definitely not a place for those uh, like my dad's generation, where you might get on a workover rig and stay on that same rig for 10 or 15 years, or at least with that crew. You might get ran off a rig. You go down. As a crew, all five of you or six of you, and go get a job on another rig together. You just don't see that, but if you're willing to to be more mobile, take your take your skills, uh, continue to use that thing we have in our hands, our phones, all the time, to better learn technology, not just uh, look at TikTok. There, there is a real place for those kind of people, um, and they're fewer and farther between. I, I can even say myself. Fifteen years ago, I, I would hammer that. Uh, when a customer would come to me and want something very specific. I'm like, it's expensive to get somebody who can swing a hammer and run a computer. I can get you a computer guy. I can get you a hammer swinger. But mashing that into one person uh, is very, very expensive. Uh, and the only reason I pulled it off is I co- convinced them I could swing a hammer, though anybody that's ever seen me swing one <laughs> will know that was a lie. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh gosh!
0: So I hope that I hope that gave a little bit of uh, encouragement to the right kind of people. You know, it's a it's a it's a great industry for a, a lot of people, and as you said, it's not going anywhere. Even if you turn off the the gas pipe, right? You stop running vehicles with gas. Everything we make comes from petroleum, absolutely, uh, in one form or another.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Even in the um, original Paris Agreement. Um, there was never the intention to eliminate oil and gas. Um, the consumption profile in 2050 at the Paris 2015 Accord um, was to uh, still have the same profile that we have now, which was more uh, oil and gas uh, or more hydrocarbon use than non-hydrocarbon use. Um, and that ratio um, you know, has, has stayed the same, uh, which is what it is now, 80% of what we... Uh, Used today in terms of energy is uh, hydrocarbon, and eighty percent of that is oil and gas. So it's just hard to um, to, to, to to say that we're not going to do it now. Do we have a responsibility to? to help uh, a- apply all energy forms yes, not everybody has oil and gas. not everybody else ha- not everybody has wind, not everybody has solar. so we' we're, we're blessed to have all of the above. so I'm, a, I'm an all of the above person and whatever is the most cost effective has the best value proposition for you is what you should what you should pursue. everybody should have a, a choice. I'm um, concerned about energy poverty and energy literacy. People should know where their oil and gas comes from, where their energy comes from. Um, And right now I am saying where their oil and gas is coming from, because (laughs) we are some places are still importing um, oil and gas from people who don't love us. So I, I, I am concerned about that, especially when we talk about energy security, national security and economic security. So very good well let me ask you to think about the the future we looked at the past and we um we talked about maybe technology changes there and uh just how life was and so what what would you guess what would you think what would you like to if you were the king of the world what what kind of oil field uh uh changes improvements advancements uh i don't know styles would you would you come forward with what would you, what would you be your thoughts about the oil field of the of the way future
0: well I, I suppose there's a a micro and a macro um piece to that right of course the micro is kind of what's in front of my face the people that i know and love and respect and work for and, and making sure that uh as i believe as the macro goes uh, it stops being oil and gas It starts being energy in general, right? It's a, it's like a multivitamin, right? You can't have too much of one in there. You've got to have the right mix. Uh, and each year, each country, each, you know, uh, industrial change has its own, has its own mixture, right? No one size fits all. So, you know, obviously I, I look forward to how we're going to transition, you know, the hundreds of thousands of men, men and women that rely basically strictly on oil and gas and how we move those, uh, skills, um, Forward, uh, well, once again, doing all the things we've we've been working on for a long time when it comes to the environment and, and transition, and it'll it'll have to take the lead from the bigger companies. They will they will move the needle in the right way, and then I guess the family part of me is always, well, we'll always be a little bit wildcatters. There'll always be those people like the Harold hams and, and some of those guys that will come in and disrupt where we're going, but make it much, much better. And then uh, I have no problem. Part of my whole business and life philosophy is to be second or third in line. I don't like being out there on the front. Let the guys with the big money uh, make all the big mistakes. Let me come in, understand the, uh, the rules of the game and move on. So I, I think as we go long-term, I'm, I'm very pro a lot of different uh, angles. I, I think uh, some of the things maybe less of a crystal ball and more of a suggestion on things to pay attention to. Um, but I actually think there'll be a lot of benefit as we hit a critical mass of electric cars and the way energy is both uh, conserved and consumed that will affect uh, oil and gas directly. And of course, energy uh, further down the road. Uh, though cryptocurrency has obviously gotten quite a black eye over the last little while with the FTX collapse and some of that, there's also uh we're starting to see people dabble in that. And there's a lot of talk about how we can actually increase the efficiencies or at least uh, transition some of that, that cost burden into a, a currency type base using some of these systems. So I think there's a lot of things happening outside our industry that directly affect us. When you can find a small independent company, uh, stop flaring their gas into the into the air and actually start running compressors to run uh, mining operations and things like that. You, you know there's a, a sea change and people are trying things. So I think paying attention to some of these uh, auxiliary uh, pieces will be important, right? You think about uh, when oil and gas started, the biggest problem was uh, well blubber, right? We need whale oil to keep things lit, well, we've got this new thing for you. Um, and we, we didn't even know we had this byproduct. We, we poured it into the river. We lit the Cleveland River on fire a few times. And then uh, Henry Ford and his uh, compatriots come out with a vehicle. All of a sudden, oh, well, there's a whole another uh, thing that we need to think about to work on. So it, it, I think it's a lot to do with what is happening outside of us that will affect what we're going to do. There's still going to be a core business. You're still going to utilize this resource. Um, might make me sound a little more old school, but we've been hearing that we're at peak uh, oil. We're going to run out of oil for longer than I've been alive. Uh, and I, you know, I think less and less that's the concern, and more and more it's uh, utilizing it correctly, uh, finding efficiencies uh, in things. Right? If if we can run certain things more efficient with electricity or nuclear, uh, we need to look at that. While at the same time realizing, is there better ways to make plastics uh, and those kind of things. So I think as always, the oil and gas industry will be the Goliath that gets beat around a lot by these, uh, these changes. And then we'll just, we'll just morph uh, just like the liquid we get out of the ground until it fits uh, it fits the mold of of where the future goes. And most of that outside of our ability to vote uh, is not within our control. I don't think our, our job is to be efficient, to be clean uh, to protect the environment and provide uh, arguably the the one commodity that's brought more human beings out of uh, poverty uh, and has allowed a expansion of a world that in a lot of ways is still good for all the for all this sadness and hate and discontent on uh uh on t v and everything else you know stephen pinker's uh book reviews just how much safer just how much better every aspect of life is for for almost everybody on the planet compared to even a royalty a hundred or two hundred years ago so I think we do need to remember that and, and energy will be here to stay. And don't get me wrong. If someday they turn around and cold fusion actually works, I, I think that uh, most of the people in my industry are smart, capable, and hardworking enough. There'll be other places for us. Um, though I don't I don't see that moonshot uh, coming out of, out of nowhere. Uh, but like I say, most of the people I know in this industry uh, live by very simple code. And that's, uh, wh- tell me what the game is. Tell me what the rules of the game are. And uh, um, we will merely put in the work to make it happen. And you still need those kind of people, even in a digital economy. You need the ones willing to put in the work, get a little get a little grease on their hands to uh, keep things moving forward.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Good people. Everyone can make a contribution and we should allow people to make the best contribution that they're able to make. And you should have fun while you work as well. So some (laughs) people like my husband likes to work with his hands. He's a biologist, but he's still out there in the garage and in the yard. I mean, you know, some people really that's in life should be, you know, full of options and choices like that. Oh, Jimmy, well, it's been so wonderful talking with you. I so appreciate you um, being with us and joining us today. We're almost at our at the end of our time. Um, is there any last thoughts you want to share with our audience? I mean, we've just learned so much from you about <laughs> about the surface of hydraulic fracturing, and and uh, changes over the over time. So, any last uh, things you'd like to share with our audience here?
0: Well, well, thank you once again for your time. I, I really. Uh... Enjoyed being on. Um, I hope it uh, was informative to some people out there, and I suppose I'll I'll leave on a note that'll hopefully get you a few a uh, few comments. But uh, frac is spelled f r a c, not f r a c k, so we can uh, we we can fight on LinkedIn about that one.
1: Oh no, absolutely! That's that's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> I, I've got this list of ten things. The first one is there is no tank of oil and gas any underneath the ground. It's not like a swimming pool down there. It's, it's rock. It's in the rock. And the other one is, uh, another one is, there is no K in frac. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, th- it's been delightful talking with you, Jimmy Robinson of Northern Oil Field Services. I thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for all your com- contributions to the oil and gas sector. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, And please give us a review and tell us what you like and we'd like to hear about in the future uh, on future podcasts. This is Elena Melker, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time.
0: Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.